If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his, this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Amen. And that is the Word of God. Given that this is the first Sunday of the month of December, I've decided to stop our exposition of Peter's first epistle and study the theme of hope as we look forward to Christmas Day. Today, as we look around at our beleaguered world, we stand wondering at the same question that our predecessors once asked. And if the Lord delays his return, it will be the same question that our children will one day ask themselves. The question that we all ponder upon is, is there any real hope for this world? With disease running rampant, with marriages on the ropes, with no end in sight to global hunger, with new acts of terrorism around every bend, with mass shootings on the rise within our own nation, with a viscerally divided election year, and with the continual provocations of North Korea, is there any real hope for this broken world? That's an important question. Historians record World War II to have been the bloodiest war in terms of human life as the number of fatalities, including battle deaths and civilians of all countries, is estimated to have been 56.4 million. The loss of human life was absolutely staggering. Some countries lost an immense amount of people. Poland, for example, lost 17.2% of their entire population. 17.2%. Can you imagine that? Well, after World War II, the evangelist Billy Graham 
had the opportunity to meet Konrad Adenauer, the first chancellor of West Germany, the man who led Germany out of its World War II ruins. And Dr. Graham writes this, I was invited to have coffee one morning with Konrad Adenauer before he retired as the chancellor of Germany. When I walked in, I expected to meet a tall, stiff, formal man who might even be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of religion. After the greeting, the chancellor suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? Before I could answer, he answered his own question. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is alive, then there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I don't see the slightest glimmer of hope in the horizon. Friends, make no mistake about it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most important event in all of history because if it was simply a myth, Just as the Chancellor said while looking out at the ruins of Germany, there isn't the slightest glimmer of hope for humanity in the horizon. I sincerely believe that with all of my heart. And as we draw closer and closer to Christmas Day, I want you all to think about the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. Far from being a dull annual routine, the birth of Christ ought to change the way you view and live your day-to-day. Now, I know that sounds very far-fetched for some of you because this is perhaps just a tradition and not so much a lifestyle. As I preach on hope this morning, I want to ask you, is your life right now filled with hope? Or are you hopeless, anxious, and depressed? You might hide it well, But the question is for you to answer yourself. Jesus wants to take your burdens and he wants to free you from your hopelessness. And I think part of the reason why so many Christians have so little hope is because we generally do not have a clear understanding of the Bible's definition for hope. So many of our hopes are simply self-centered ambitions. We hope to get a promotion at work. We hope to meet the right person, to marry. Or we hope that our kids turn out okay. Some of you maybe are hoping for the sermon not to exceed 30 minutes. And I am okay with that. Your hopes will be realized. I can guarantee you that. But what happens when you don't get that promotion at work? What happens if the right person never comes along and you don't get married? What happens if your children go astray? Or even worse, what happens if your children pass away at a young age, leaving parents devastated? Then it will only be a matter of time before you lose hope as well. This morning, I want us to leave with a biblical perspective of hope. I I don't want us to simply light a candle and leave here with a cheesy hallmark moment. I want you to leave here with a solid foundation 
one that will withstand the trials of the world. Because everything outside of these walls, everything is almost geared toward devastating and ripping you from hope. This morning, I want us to leave with a biblical perspective of hope. And here is today's central theological principle. Despite what occurs in the world around us, Christians are always able to have hope because we are no longer under divine wrath. Despite what occurs in the world around us, Christians are always able to have hope because we are no longer under divine wrath. People who walk away from Christianity simply because they don't have their requests answered are severely missing the point. Starting from the first century on, Christians, especially Christian martyrs, have always had their hearts filled with hope because they understood the principle that this world is not their permanent home. That no matter how bad things got for them on earth, they would continue to press on with hope because they knew that heaven was their final destination. I want you to think about it this way. Ask yourself this question. Would you be willing to accept the salary of $1,000 for one month's time of work if you knew that once the month was done, you would immediately receive a $10,000 a month pension with immediate payout for the rest of your life? I think most of you would. It's a no-brainer. And I want to say, compared to eternity, our lives on earth could be seen as that one short month, if not shorter. And so the Christian poor were always encouraged by New Testament leaders to keep the faith and finish the race because a glorious eternity was coming up right around the corner. Right around the corner. We are instructed by Scripture to not be like Esau, who in a moment of weariness sold his birthright for some vegetable stew. Yes, life gets difficult, but we are not to lose hope, because our hope is anchored in Christ. Hang in there, because one day you're going to look back in eternity, and you're going to think, man, I got a sweet deal. Give you another example. Next month, military personnel with less than 12 years of active duty service will be able to opt into what is now known as BRS or the blended retirement system. For those not thinking of doing 20 years of service, the new system allows them to separate from service with a potentially substantial retirement check. And this is an important consideration, an important option, especially when one realizes the stat that 83% of the military do not stay for a full 20 years. If such 
It, it is such an important decision that the military actually mandates all personnel to receive training on BRS prior to making what is known as an irrevocable decision in 2018. In other words, once you make the decision, there's no turning back. You can't change it. Well, I'm here to tell you that eternity is an infinitely more vital decision. Soon after your retirement, all of you in this room will face an eternity based on your decision on earth. And like BRS, but on a whole nother level, it is also an irrevocable decision. Once you die, there's no turning back. It's either heaven or hell. There is no purgatory. There are no second chances. The Bible says that it is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior while on earth, then verse 1 states that you are justified through that faith, and you gain admission into heaven, because through the blood of Christ, you've attained peace with God. And conversely, if you die without having accepted Christ as Savior, then the Bible makes it clear that you will pay for your own sins by suffering eternally in hell. Can you imagine how silly it is to see a person plan so carefully, putting in the numbers into BRS calculator so that they could get the perfect retirement, but taking no heed to eternity? It's an absolute farce. While the Bible might be a bit ambiguous on other points of doctrine, it is very explicit when it comes to the pathway of salvation. Salvation, according to the Bible, is a binary thing. You only have one of two options. Or as John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And the word remains in John 3.36 informs us that humanity's default position is one of guilt. And this comes as a surprise to many unbelievers who assume that we are all, at birth, children of God. Not only are we guilty for our own sins, but for the original sin of Adam and Eve. And verses like John 3.36 give us the reason why so many missionaries leave the comforts of America to share the gospel to foreign nations. They love people, and they know that without believing in the gospel, they are doomed to eternity in hell. They understand that God doesn't send people to hell because they've never heard the gospel, but rather God sends people to hell for being sinners. And tragically, all men are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the apostle says. Missionaries, therefore, do the most important work of offering a divine amnesty to people who may not even know that they are underneath divine wrath. And scripture makes it clear that ignorance is not a valid reason in the eyes of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. You and I have the privilege of going out and offering a divine amnesty to those who are underneath divine wrath. Many who don't even know that they are underneath God's wrath. But here, 
Many are repulsed by the notion of God sending some of his creatures to hell. And part of that repulsion is due to the fact that people automatically assume that God is obligated to unconditionally accept and befriend his creatures. After all, they say, we weren't asked to be created. And while it is true that God loves the world and desires all to be saved, that is absolutely true. Verse 10 of today's passage informs us that prior to professing faith in Christ, we are all, get this, rebel enemies of God. If you don't like what I'm saying, just look down and read the text. It's right there. This might come as a surprise to some who are used to sort of hearing a sugared-down version of the gospel. But I believe that is the same reason why we don't embrace hope in the manner that we ought to. This might come as a surprise to many, but because our lives were full of sin, although God loved us, He nevertheless viewed us as objects of wrath. And here at this point, many people cringe. For many, the notion of God's wrath is also very, very repulsive. And sadly, this is also why, for many individuals, many professing Christians, Verse 5 of today's text is nothing more than a cheesy line on a Hallmark card. The reason why so many of us treat biblical hope so cheaply is because we treat God's grace so cheaply. And the reason why we treat divine grace so cheaply is because we have a high view of our own morality, our own standing and a low view of God's holy wrath against all forms of sin. We love to compare ourselves to the individuals we see on television, murderers and criminals, and we deem ourselves worthy of God's favor and love. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But I want to contend that once we properly understand the wrath of God, as terrible as it is, Only then will we begin to properly celebrate hope. And that's what I want us to leave here this morning celebrating. I want us to celebrate hope. Real hope. Divine hope. I want us to know why the birth of Christ is uniquely the most hope-saturated event in all of human history. Christmas is the ultimate expression of God's love for humanity because as verse 9 explicitly states, God's wrath is fierce. And in one of the most famous verses of the entire Bible, Paul in verse 8 famously declares that God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. What a powerful text. The epitome epitome of love, therefore, is Christ's willingness to die for ungodly people like you and me. me. The, 
The Bible correctly in verse 7 recognizes the fact that very rarely would any of us be willing to lay down our lives for our neighbors. And to be honest, let's be honest, most of us would be reticent about giving up one of our kidneys to someone in need. I know I am. And I'm the pastor. But the love of God is so marvelously extravagant that Christ gave up His own life for His enemies, deserving of His Father's wrath. Would a judge give up the life of his own son for a condemned murderer? And if, as verse 10 states, God was willing to reconcile us to Himself while we were still His enemies, then how much more, now that we believe in Christ, should we have the honest expectation of a glorious reunion with God in heaven? Friends, are you beginning to see why a proper understanding of God's wrath is pivotal to understanding biblical hope? Biblical hope is not based on anything in this world. It is not based on anything transient that we could gain or lose. Instead, as verse 2 states, biblical hope is in the glory of God. It is the hope that one day, after a difficult life on earth, on that last day, Christians will be glorified and perfected. As great as a military retirement is after 20 years, one of you wore a t-shirt, I long to wear that t-shirt one day, a military retirement t-shirt. It does not compare to the hope of rest in heaven. That's the hope that you ought to live with year after year. A hope that grows as we age. It doesn't dim because we're getting closer and closer to the realization of our hope. And it is that hope that allows us to go through some of the most difficult days on earth. As the Chancellor of Germany, the first Chancellor of West Germany said, without Christ there is no real hope. And you know, some of you acutely know the truth of what I'm saying. You are going through some trials right now that without Christ you will be the first to admit to me you don't know how you would make it through to the next day. And it's that hope that allows us to go through suffering. It says so right in that text. It is that hope that propels us forward in perseverance, that allows us to keep on going. And it is that hope that produces character as our hearts are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what does verse 5 talk about shame? Verse 5 declares that such hope will not put us to shame. Instead of being criminals, humiliated on the day of judgment, and if you ever watch TV and a, a murderer or a rapist is caught and is being brought out by the police, he also often has his face hid by a hoodie. It's that sort of shame that sinners will one day feel in the presence of holy God. Well, verse 5 states that instead of being criminals humiliated on the day of judgment, Christians will confidently stand Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah. 
Christian hope, therefore, is not some wishful fortune cookie verbiage. It is the fulfillment of God's law, and it is an official legal declaration. It's substantive. Romans 5 starts with a ringing affirmation of the objective legal standing of the Christian. That the Christian, through his faith in Christ alone, has been justified and declared righteous by God once and for all. And the result of this justification is that the Christian is no longer underneath the fear and judgment of the wrath of God, but instead has peace with God, which is not merely a subjective feeling, but an objective reality. It's, it's more real than anything you'll experience on this earth. And that is why, friends, Romans 5.1 is perhaps one of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. Let's read it together. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of facing God's immense eternal wrath, through faith in Christ, we now have peace with God. Maybe for some of you, you're still sitting here saying, I kind of get it, but in my mind, uh, hope is still kind of like what I read on a Hallmark card. It's not really as grand as you're making it out, chaplain. So let me help you with that. I said earlier, in order for us to understand biblical hope, we must first understand divine wrath. In order to understand God's love, we need to understand God's justice. One is not greater than the other. These are all equal attributes of God. And whenever we stress one more than the other, we end up with a truncated, abnormal vision of God. And believe it or not, we actually begin to appreciate less of God's hope and love when we don't have a balanced view of the attributes of God. So let me give you an example. Earlier this year, renowned theologian Stephen Lawson wrote a short article on the former Catholic monk Martin Luther. This is a significant year, as you know. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation And outside of Jesus and and Augustine, perhaps Luther has the most amount of books written on him in Western civilization, in the history of the church. And here's an excerpt that is, I believe, well written by Dr. Lawson. He writes, In the monastery, Luther was driven to find acceptance with God through works. He wrote, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in real idolatry, for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe, terrible judge, 
portrayed as seated on a rainbow. Elsewhere, he recalled, When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. Luther received his Doctor of Theology degree from the University of Wittenberg in 1512 and was named Professor of Bible there. And remarkably, Luther kept his teaching position for the next 34 years until his death in 1546. One question consumed him. How is a sinful man made right before a holy God? And for some of you, maybe you're not there like Luther. You're, you, you don't really care about that question that much, but I guarantee you one day you will. In fact, that is the most important question in the universe. How is a sinful man made right before a holy God? And Luther goes on to write, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. There was no hope for this man. And it would not be until Luther meditated on the words of Apostle Paul, words that we read today, that he was finally liberated and hope entered his heart. He writes, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. End quote. And friends, it is my sincere desire that you leave here this morning with hope. This past week, everything sort of lined up, I think, for this sermon. We were having a men's discussion over lunch at PMOC. And I think the first line said something like, if you find yourself weary in, in working for God, you don't have a relationship with God. Instead, you have religion. And some of you sitting here today, no matter how many years you've professed Christ, some of you still don't know the hope of Christmas. Some of you are tired and weary. And it's because you don't have a relationship with the Savior who was born on Christmas Day. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let us leave with that hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word.
For it is through your word we gain eternal hope.